presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. And this is our third in our series on Saved by Grace. What does it mean? And today we're going to be talking about called by God. What does it mean to be called by God? There's some outlines in the back if, uh, if you don't have any. And uh, our key passage for the series is the first one that's listed in that little box at the top of your outline. And let's just take a moment and read through that. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. And this is from the New International Version where Paul writes, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we're talking about what it means to be saved and the part that grace plays in there. So let's just review just for a minute. What, what does the word grace mean? Unmerited yeah, unmerited favor. That's right, that God is not giving us what we deserve, but in fact is giving us what we don't deserve. We not only do not deserve it, but we are ill-deserving. We deserve just the opposite. And grace indicates that God is giving us this salvation that he talks about here, not based on the works that we've done, but based on his grace. It's not anything that we have merited in any way. Uh, now, do works, our works don't count as far as our salvation is concerned, but are our works important? And the answer is yes. After we come to know Christ, our works are very important. In fact, we just read in this passage here that God has prepared in advance certain things for us to do. And so God gifts us, he enables us to do certain things, and we are to do those things, and then God is pleased as we carry that out. Last week, we began to talk about God's unbreakable chain of salvation, and we, we used for our text... Uh, the same one that I've still got in that box, the second, uh, the second passage, and we'll call that our working passage for today. And let's just read that out of Romans 8, verses 28 through 30, again from the New International Version. It says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And so what we saw is that there is a, <clears throat> there is a chain made up, Paul says here, of basically five links. Now we're looking at in detail at some of these things and he says that God's salvation is like an unbreakable chain. Now one of the things we know about a chain is it's only as strong as what? It's weakest link. 
Now the great thing about this chain is there aren't any weak links in it at all. And it begins with God's foreknowledge. It includes God's predestining power, his predestination, and of course all of that takes place in eternity. Paul continues to say that the next link is the chain in the chain is that we are called, and that's what we're going to focus on today. What does it mean to be called? What is, what is this word all about? And then, having been called, that God justified us, and then having, ju and this, incidentally, this takes place in time and space. <clears throat> in other words, right now, not in eternity. It's in God's mind in eternity, but it takes place in time and space, and then the last thing in this chain is what? Yeah, that God says whom he justified, he also glorified. And when you look at that verb, what, uh, what, what do you notice about that verb? What's the verb tense? Past tense, yeah. You say, well, wait a minute. Glorification is when we get to be with the Lord Jesus, and that hasn't taken place yet. So how is it? that the Apostle Paul, in writing this under the inspiration of the Spirit, would use the past tense. Why not say, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, one of these days he'll glorify. Why do you suppose Paul didn't use that kind of wording? Any thoughts? Yeah, he already knows clearly that God has determined the end from the beginning. And so glorification takes place in eternity. And that is, God has established that he is going to do a certain thing, and God has made provision not only in eternity, but in time and space to carry out his will. God does all things well, and that includes the salvation that he gives to his people. It extends from eternity through time and space to eternity again. And just by way of review, and I'll, we'll do sort of a quickie kind of review, uh, we talked last week about God's electing grace uh, of salvation in eternity and that electing grace in Christ. And I've got a couple of verses there uh, in your outline that might be worth looking at just for a minute. Notice from Ephesians uh, 1, verse 4, and this is from the New American Standard Bible, it says, He, God, chose us, the believers, in Him, Christ, when? Before the foundation of the world. And what was the end to which He chose us? That we should be what? Holy, holy and blameless. Does it say He chose us because we were holy and blameless? No. It says He chose us in order to make us that we might become holy and blameless. So again, what we see is that salvation is, is a matter of grace. It is not a matter of works. And then notice uh, Romans 9, verse 18. So then, and here we see not only God's grace, but we see that this is God's sovereign grace. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires... And he hardens whom he desires. Now, and we talked about that at length, over, especially over the last couple of weeks. One other verse, and I couldn't remember whether I pointed this one out last week or not, so I included it here. 
Here's an example of God's electing grace from uh, Acts 13, verse 48. Uh, Paul and I believe Barnabas are preaching at Pisidian Antioch, uh, which is in what would amount to modern-day Turkey today. At preaching the gospel, and an interesting thing began to happen. Notice what it says. It says, when the Gentiles heard this, and the this refers to the preaching of the gospel, that Christ had come to save sinners, and it wouldn't be not only Jews, but it would include Gentiles also. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And now notice the last part of the verse. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Notice what it did not say. It didn't say this. It didn't say, and all those who believed were appointed for eternal life. What did it say? What does it, what does it say? Yeah, those who were appointed for eternal life did what? They believed. Why did they believe? Because God had already intended to carry out His purpose in them, to show His gracious salvation to them. Incidentally, and this is not in your notes, if you want to jot the reference in there, you can. John uh, 10, 26 is a, real, is a real good reference because it basically says the same thing. In John 10, 26, Jesus is talking to a group of Jews, people who are really hassle, hassling him a lot. And he says this, he says, you do not believe because you're not my sheep. He doesn't say, you're not my sheep because you don't believe. He said, the reason you don't believe is because you're not my sheep. See, there are two kinds of people, and one of the things that we discover when we read the Bible very closely is we discover that there are two kinds of people in the world. Jesus told a story in uh, Matthew chapter 24 and 25. He, he uh, gives what's known as the Olivet Discourse. And part of that discourse is he tells what's going to happen when he comes back in glory at the end of the age. And he says at the end of that time when he comes back to, to render judgment over the earth, that he is going to separate people into two groups. He's going to separate them into what? Anybody remember from their having read Matthew 25? He separates sheep and goats. That's right. He says, I'm going to put the sheep on my right hand and I'm going to put the goats on my left hand. Now, our tendency is to think, and, here's, and so much of us, so many of us have been taught this, that what God does is that somehow he takes goats and he makes sheep out of them. But the Bible never teaches that. What God does is there are two kinds of people. There are goats. These are the people who don't know Christ. And there are sheep. These are the people who either know Christ or will know Christ. Because see, there's two kinds of sheep, isn't there? There are lost sheep and there are found sheep. What does the good shepherd always do? He always finds his sheep. Remember when the good shepherd, the story, and we, I think we talked about this last week, when the good shepherd started off with a hundred sheep and one of them kind of wandered away. So here's God. He's foreknown and predestined a hundred. We'll just say that's the perfect number. And one of them kind of strays from the bunch. Does God say, well, let's just cut our losses. We're doing all right. 
Let's cut our losses. Everything's going to be fine. What does the good shepherd do? He goes out and looks for that sheep. Does he find the sheep? He always finds the sheep. And he always brings that sheep to himself. God doesn't take goats and make sheep out of them. People are sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray, Isaiah wrote. All of us have turned our own way, and the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all, all of us sheep, upon him. There are lost sheep, and there are found sheep. We need to ask ourselves, do I know that I have been found by the good shepherd? Do I know that there was a time when I recognized myself for who I am, the sinner that I am, and I recognized that I needed to call on Christ to save me? Now, not only do we see God's electing work, and again, we're sort of reviewing. We talked about last week God's foreknowledge and also God's predestination. When we talk about foreknowledge, basically we're talking about people. God foreknows people, and to, the word foreknow means more than just to know ahead of time. Does God know ahead of time what's going to happen? Sure he does. He's God. He's omniscient. If he didn't know that, he wouldn't be God. But... It's more than just knowing ahead of time. We discovered that the scriptures tell us that the word know infers what? Very often. Not only knowledge, foreknowledge is knowledge ahead of time, but what does the word know itself, K-N-O-W, infer? Intimacy, that's right. That God, before time, is intimate with his people. He foreknows people. When we talk about predestination, we're not talking about people so much as we are purpose. What is the purpose of predestination? The purpose of predestination is to do what? Is to make the people of God into what? Into the image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice, uh, we'll just read a couple of verses to kind of get the gist of this. Uh, relating to foreknowledge, the one in 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered, who were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. God was intimate with them in eternity before the world was ever put into to, uh, to being. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what that's like? That before, if you belong to Jesus right now, if you have a relationship with Jesus, that God not only knew you, but was intimate with you, not only before you were a twinkle in your daddy's eye, but before he ever put the first star in the space, before he ever put a plant on this earth, that God already was intimate with us. And in due time, he would send Christ to die for the sins of his people and then would call us to himself, and justify us, and eventually bring us to be with him. Oh, praise be to God for that. We're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. How? By the sanctifying work of the Spirit. To what end? That we may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. And notice, in terms of predestination, the verse that I've got there for you, and again, just in terms of review, this is from Ephesians 1. It says... He predestined us, and who's the us there? Us refers to whom? Everybody everywhere, who's the us? 
Yeah, the believer in Christ. That's right. He, God, predestined us, the believer, to adoption as sons. Now, we're going to talk in a couple of weeks about what adoption is all about, but it means that when God saves us, we not only become His children, but God treats us as His adult children. He gives us privileges and responsibilities. That's what the word adoption means. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. So you notice the focus, the purpose of God's predestining His people, one purpose was that of adoption, that He might, that he might grant us privileges, that He might grant us responsibilities, that He might view us in a particular way, that He might give us a certain status. And then it says... Later in that verse, also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. We're predestined according to his purpose, and part of that purpose is conformity to what? Conformity to what? Yeah, to God's will and what else? To God's purpose and to God's image that God is working in us to make us into the image of His Son. Now, how does God do all of that? Okay, God has chosen a people for Himself in eternity. He has purposed that He is going to bring them to glory. He's purposed that He's going to adopt them into His family. He's purposed that He is going to change them and make them into the very image of Christ Jesus Himself. Now, how do, now, that all happens in eternity. How does God do that? Well, this is where our study today intersects with eternity because calling happens in terms of time and space. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to sing, but look under your chair, and I want you to grab a hymnal and turn to page 415. You'll be real glad that I'm not going to sing if you ever heard me sing. But I want us to look at Eugene Bartlett's uh, great old hymn, Victory in Jesus. I bet you everybody in this room has, at one time or another, sung Victory in Jesus. Oh, he sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. And I mean, we get stirred up, my feet get to tapping. And it's a wonderful hymn, and we all enjoy singing it. But there's some really important truths that we need to ask ourselves. When we look at this, notice verse uh, stanza 1. I heard an old, old story, verse, uh, stanza two. I heard about his healing, stanza three. I heard about a mansion. How is it that we hear? Because the Bible says that until we come to Christ, we are dead in trespasses and sins. We're hostile toward God. We don't understand the things of the Spirit of God. So how is it that we hear this wonderful story. Bartlett goes on to say, I heard about the streets of gold. I heard about his groaning. And then notice near the bottom of that in that first stanza, then he says, then I repented of my sins. Well, one of the things that we're going to discover in a couple of three weeks is that repentance is a gift of God. It's just like, like grace. Grace and repentance both are God's gifts. Well, how is it that we repent? If we are hostile toward God, if we don't understand the things of the Spirit of God, 
if there's no one who seeks after God and the Bible indicates that all of that is true, how is it that we repent? How is it that we hear all of these things? Well, I think the key to understanding that is in the second stanza, that last line before the chorus. It says, And somehow Jesus came and brought to me the victory. Now, the rest of our time today, we're going to focus on the somehow. What is the somehow in which Jesus came to me and brought me the victory that he talks about here. What is that somehow? Well, that's where we're focusing on calling. The word call is kaleo. It simply means to call. But the Bible is clear uh, to call or to summon. The Bible is clear that there are two types of, uh, of calling or two categorizations, I guess you could say, of calling in the Bible. One is a call to a task or to a, to a work. And I put an illustration of that, in fact, two illustrations of that, uh, where someone's being called to service. Notice in Isaiah 45, verse 13, Isaiah writes, under the inspiration of God's Spirit, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight, he will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. Now, okay, so there's a call that came to someone named Cyrus. Now, does anybody remember who Cyrus is? Any clue who Cyrus is? Okay, Cyrus, I'm sorry? Uh, that's close. He's, uh, he's a, he's a, actually, he's a Persian king, but you're, you're in the right category. He's a Persian king. Now, we have, we have substantiation from the scriptures that there was a Babylonian king named Nebuchadnezzar who did come to faith. God saved him. And it's a marvelous story. It's really one of the, I think, the outstanding parts of the book of Daniel. But at the end of the 70 years of captivity into which the children of Judea, the children of Israel, had gone, at the end of that time, God raised up another empire, the Medes and the Persian. It was called the, originally called the Medo-Persian Empire, and later it came to be known as the Persian Empire because the Medes uh, tended to lose their influence. Uh, if you just to refresh your memories, there was a guy named Darius, or if you like Hootie and the Blowfish, you could call this Darius, uh, who was a Mede. And, uh, and the best and the most well-known Persian was, uh, was a gentleman named Cyrus. Well, there's no, there's no indication in the Scripture that Cyrus was ever a saved person, that God ever saved him. In fact, the historical documents show that when Cyrus died, he died as a polytheist, and yet God called him to do a certain thing. And according to this verse, what was it that God called him to do? Well to rebuild the city that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And ultimately that city and the temple and the walls under the leadership of Nehemiah were all rebuilt. But Cyrus was never converted. But that was a call to a particular task or to a work. Uh, there's another illustration, and that's the calling of the Apostle Paul. Notice uh, he begins 1 Corinthians uh, by saying, Paul, called to be an apostle 
of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That's a call to do a certain work, to perform a certain service, to be an apostle. Uh, one of the wonderful things about the Reformation when it came along that was Luther, Luther recognized the fact that all of us, not just preachers, have callings. Some people are called to be plumbers. Some people are called to be receptionists. Some people are called to be bankers. Some people are called to be homemakers. Some people are called to be mechanics. They're all callings. It's not that just your preacher is called and the rest of us just kind of flunky around, you know, we pay him to be good and we're good for nothing. It's not that at all. It's that, uh, that we all have a certain calling, a certain task, a service that we are to perform. And that has nothing to do, really, with our salvation. But there's another calling that the Bible talks about, and that's the calling to respond to the gospel. And what we see here, again, I'll refer you, uh, well, I'll refer you to your notes in just a second. Now, when we get to this, that a second kind of, uh, a second kind of call is to respond to the gospel, what we discover here is there are two types of, uh, of callings here. One of them is the, uh, has to do with the preaching of the gospel. And the other has to do with what we call the effectual call. And we want to talk about what those two things are. Why is it that we sit in church for years and years and years and hear the gospel preached and it goes over our heads this way or it goes in this ear and out the other ear and it never makes any sense? Why is it that it happens for years and years and then all of a sudden one night we're sitting in a chair in our den and we pick up a little gospel tract that someone has given us entitled God's Simple Plan of Salvation and we start reading it and it's written in language that, uh, that an 8 to 10 year old could understand and all of a sudden it's like the lights come on. The difference is what's known as the effectual call. The preaching of the gospel and the effectual call. Notice, again, I refer you to your uh, outline there. When we talk about the preaching of the gospel, we're talking about something that is external. We're talking about something that is universal. To whom, uh, one of the things that we are told to do, the, the gist of the Great Commission is to do what? As believers, our marching orders are what? Preach the gospel everywhere. Uh, are we just supposed to find the elect and preach to them? No, no. What does the Bible say? It says go into all the world and preach the gospel. And what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of Jesus' death and subsequent resurrection three days later that forgiveness of sins is available through him and what does a person have to do in order to be saved just believe believe in what yeah believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and what and you will be saved that is a universal call does that apply to everybody everywhere can you go anywhere in the world and look somebody in the eye and say if you will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ 
if you will turn from your sins, God will save you. Can we say that honestly to everybody in the world? Yeah. That's the universal call of the gospel. But more often than not, when we look folks in the eyes and we say, if you'll just trust in Christ, you know, what we usually do is if we go out on evangelism, we go with a partner and we pull up in front of somebody's house and one of us says to the other, you know, we probably ought to have prayer before we go and say, yeah, that's a good idea. And say, oh God, please don't let them be home because we don't want to go in there and face all those folks. That's usually the way we pray. But we, we, we ask, we pray for people. Oh, God, save my brother. God, save my lost sisters. God, save my Uncle Fred. God, save my Aunt Lucy. Just, and we pray all that, and we preach the gospel, and we can honestly tell people, if you'll believe in Christ, he'll save you. And that's true. But why don't they believe? What is the problem? Well, the problem is human nature. See, it always comes back. Remember, this is square one. We always come back to here. What is man and woman, all of humankind's condition, apart from a relationship with God in Christ? We are dead in trespasses and sins. We are hostile toward God. We do not seek after God. All of those things are true of us. And so when people hear the gospel, when I heard the gospel for years and years, and for some of you, when you heard the gospel, our response to the gospel is, yeah, that sounds all right. I was talking with a guy here a while back, sharing some things about what God had done in my life and what God could do in his life if he would just turn from himself and turn to Christ. And he said this. He said, Charlie, he said, that's okay for you. But he said, you know, and that probably helps you a lot, but that's just some. That's just not for me. That's just not for me. Now, what is the problem? Well, the problem is his own human nature. How is that nature, how is that tendency to go away from God overcome? Well, that's where the effectual call comes. What does the word effectual mean? You can take the word effect. What does, uh, what does effectual mean, do you think? Yeah, it, clearly it's important. But if we affect change, what do we do? Yeah, we cause it to happen. When we talk about effectual call... We're talking about more than just inviting people to come to Christ. We're talking about more than just commanding people that they are to repent. We're talking about something that actually causes things to begin to happen. And we see that right, uh, right here. In fact, let me, uh, let's pause for a minute and look at this illustration from Matthew 22 that's in your outline there under the gospel call and the effectual call. Uh, a... Part 5, the illustration from Jesus' parable. Let's read together here. It says, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come. What are we, what are we supposed to do when we preach the gospel? We're telling folks to do what? Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He said, we go and tell them to come. But what? They refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, 
tell those who've been invited that I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened uh, cattle have been butchered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited didn't deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite, the ban- and invite to the banquet anyone you find. What is it we're supposed to do with the gospel? Everywhere, everybody, invite anyone you can find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. See, it was, it was a custom of that day that when you went to a wedding that there was a certain kind of apparel that you could wear. So here's a guy who shows up at the wedding and he's got on the wrong kind of clothes, so he just stands out like a sore thumb not wearing wedding clothes. Then the king told the attendants, I'm sorry, I skipped a verse. When the king came in to see the verse, uh, to see the guests, he noticed a man who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then that verse that scares all of us, verse 14. For many are invited. That's the general call. That goes out to many. That goes out to everyone. But few are chosen, he says. And it's interesting, too. When you look at this, what you discover is that the, the invitation went out and what happened in the banquet hall? Uh, how many people came? There were a lot of folks finally showed up, didn't it? It said the, ban- the banquet hall was just filled. But there was this, and that's the way our churches are. Our churches today are filled with people. But then the king went up and said, how come you got the wrong kind of clothes on? Why don't you have a wedding garment on? And see, the wedding garment was provided by the host. And the wedding garment is a picture of the righteousness that God imputes to us that he grants us in Christ whenever he saves us. And notice what was the man's response when, when the guy said, uh, when, when the king said, why are you in here without a, uh, without a wedding garment? What was the man's response? He was speechless. Romans 3.19 says that at that day that everyone will stand silent before God and everyone will be accountable. There's a parallel passage to this if you're interested in looking at it later. It's not in your notes. But in Luke chapter 14, you see the same story with a slightly different twist. And the twist is this. In Matthew 22, the term servants, plural, is used. In Luke chapter 14... The term slave, singular, is used. And one of the fascinating things in the Luke 14 passage is that the king tells the slave, he says, go out and compel them to come in. One of the things that happens to us, the effectual call, 
is that God changes our will. Now, our whole focus next week is going to be on regeneration. That is, that God gives us new life. That's, that's the first thing that happens to us uh, that, that we recognize that there's a change within us. But he says, and, and in the Luke 14 passage, there's nothing about sorting out people because they don't have wedding garments because the slave in that passage has compelled the few to come in. Now, let's see how all of this works out. Uh, in regard to the effectual call of the Spirit, notice I've got a, a, a passage from Isaiah 55. It sort of helps to explain this whole idea of the effectual call. And Isaiah wrote, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and don't return there without watering the earth. In other words, when the rain and snow come down, do they accomplish what they're supposed to do? Yes, they water the earth. He says, And making, the, making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. When God sends rain and snow, there's a purpose in all of that, Isaiah is saying. And then he draws the, uh, the parallel to that. So shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. Now see, here's the key. In the preaching of the gospel, God's word goes forth from whose mouth? Ours, our mouth, when we preach the gospel. But he says this, he says, So shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth when God makes it real, the effectual call. What is that all about? When God, uh, when it goes forth from my mouth, God says, what's the next phrase? It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. And notice what Jesus said there in, in the same, uh, same part of your notes in John 6, verse 37 and verse 44. Jesus said this. He said, All that the Father gives me, what? Will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Now see, mostly what we hear is the second part of that verse, isn't it? Whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. Is that true? Sure it is. But the kicker in the verse is, well, who is it that's going to come? Charles Haddon Spurgeon, that great Baptist preacher of the last century, at London Tabernacle said this. He said, what good is a whosoever will in a world where nobody will? And what Jesus is talking about here is in the effectual call what God does is through regeneration, and again, we'll talk about that next week when God brings us to life. What God does is He changes our will. He makes us willing to come. Before God works in our life, what are we like? We're dead to sin. We're antagonistic to God. We don't understand the things of the Spirit of God. We don't seek after God. Then God changes our will and all of a sudden we are in, we're enabled to embrace God. Notice the next verse there, verse 44 of John 6, where Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Notice, what does the word can mean? No one can come. What, is, what does can mean? Does that mean a desire or does it mean more than a desire? It means ability. He said, no one has the ability to come to me. See, that's a matter of the will. 
Remember what we said about our will, and we said this in our first session, that the problem in human nature is that the will is enslaved. It's enslaved to sin. We are slaves of sin. And one of the things that God's predestining and one of the things that His calling does is it frees up our will so that we can say yes to Him. Notice what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely. We'll talk in a few weeks about what sanctification is. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is He who calls you, and He also will bring it to pass. What is Paul talking about here? Faithful is He who calls you. He also will bring it to pass. What God starts, He finishes. That's exactly what Paul is talking about here. See, when God calls, we come. And when we come, we stay. You say, well, I know old George. He kind of drifted away for a while. And man, I'm telling you what, Ethel just almost went down the tube. Yeah, well, the Bible addresses those issues too. And we're going to talk about security. And we're going to talk about the fact that there, there are people who appear to be believers. But you see, what is the motivation for our following after Christ? Are we being conformed to the culture of our church? Are we being conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ? What is it that motivates our change? Are we motivated by a change of heart that God has done in our lives? Or are we motivated by some other thing like a desire to be in business with somebody? Church is a good place to go in the South because you make lots of great connections. We're going to talk more about that. An illustration from the New Testament of this whole thing of calling I think probably the most familiar, and we're not going to take the time to read it because of our time, but it has to do with the conversion of the Apostle Paul. In Acts 7 and 8, we see Stephen, the first martyr of the early church, preaching. And he goes through a history of, of Israel. And he talks about the fact that finally Messiah came and that these people, and he's addressing the Sanhedrin, who are the ruling body there in Israel, and he says, he says, you are responsible for putting this man to death. Now, one of the fascinating things is that as he's speaking all this, there's a young man named Saul from Tarsus who's hearing the gospel being preached. Do you think it has any effect at that time on Saul? The answer is no, because they picked up stones and started to kill uh, Stephen. And Saul's standing there holding their coats the whole time it's going on. And in fact, if you keep reading in Acts chapter 9, you discover that Saul was such a devoted, so devoted to Judaism and he felt that, uh, that this new way called the way Christianity was such an aberration that he wanted to stamp it out. He got letters, he got all the authorization that he needed to kill Christians, to imprison them. And then one day, as he was on his way to Damascus to take care of another group of Christians he'd heard about, what happened to him? Yeah, he was apprehended on the road to Damascus. And what See, he had heard the preaching of the gospel, and what effect had it had? It hadn't had any effect on him. Not at least none that we could notice. But what happened on the road to Damascus is that all of a sudden God stopped him in his tracks. In fact, was Paul, when he was going to Damascus, was, on, was he on his way to 
find out more about Jesus and love Jesus? No, he wasn't interested in that. He was interested in wiping out Jesus' followers. He was going just the opposite way, and God stopped him right there where he was and turned him around. And in fact, we will look at, look at one verse here, and that is uh, in Acts 9, verse 20, it says, At once he, Paul, began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And in fact, his own testimony was, uh, was that same way. Notice at the bottom of that page there, another testimony from a woman named Lydia from Thyatira. It says, on the Sabbath we went out, and the we there refers to uh, the missionary team of which Paul was a part. We went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira who was a worshiper of God. She may have been a, uh, a Jewish proselyte. We don't know. Notice the last sentence, verse 14 of Acts 16. The Lord did what? He opened her heart to do what? To respond to Paul's message. That's the effectual call of the gospel. God uses the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel is the means that God uses through which he brings the effectual call, calling us to himself. You say, well, one of these days then, does that mean that I'm going to get to heaven and I'm going to be able to look God in the face and say, well, I really wanted to be saved, but you just wouldn't save me because I wasn't one of the elect. No, because our desire is not to want to be saved unless God changes our heart. And that is what we're going to talk about next week, and we're going to link it with this as we talk about regeneration. Praise be to God for his gracious call to us. Faithful is he who calls you, who also will bring it to pass. Father, thank you for your kindness and mercy. Thank you, Lord, that from all eternity you've known your people and that in time and space you call them to yourselves. You call them to yourself. Thank you, Lord, for the way you work in our lives. We thank you for the marvelous salvation that is ours in Christ. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax-deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.